I will share one from my week. I went home last Sunday and uh, was actually working in my office a little bit on this week. And the phone rang. It was a lawyer from Houston, Texas uh, that went to our church in Houston and that I have known over the years, not terribly well, we're not close, close friends, but we know each other. Well, his wife's sister owns a cabin on Lake Erie about a block where I do ministry in the summertime. And uh, her husband, who was in the Navy, by the way, their brother lives in San Diego, where I think all, if Navy people die and go to heaven, they go to San Diego. Uh, and um, uh, her husband uh, was a submariner and ended up uh, with Parkinson's and uh, is in pretty bad condition. And so this friend from Houston calls me about his wife's sister all the way in Lake Erie uh, and asked me to do a little task for them. Uh, that just shows you how God, you know, we're never more than five people from anyone in the world and how God can use whatever relationships we do have to touch people that we might not even hardly expect that we can, could possibly touch. So that's my little God moment of the week when God uh, got... Now, does anybody have anything they didn't understand as they went through the lesson this week? A question you'd like to ask before we get started. Does anybody have a question? Now, remember, that's my second question. Watch, watch for God at work. Think about, is there something you don't understand? Did anybody have something they didn't understand or wanted me to talk about in more detail this week? Okay, if that's the case, who, uh, if, if anybody's got their book, turn to page 7, and uh, if you will, uh, read us verses Proverbs 9, 10. Okay, the fear of the Lord is wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, just to let you know, if you were to read through your Bible, if you were to read through Proverbs and Psalms, you would find that this phrase, fear of the Lord, and this little inscription, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, appears multiple times, multiple times. Sometimes it is in the form that I like, which is why you read that version, 9.10. Sometimes it's in this form. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools deny instruction. So sometimes it's in the form of, here's where you ought to be, and here's where you might end up if you ignore this. Because a fool is one who basically ignores wisdom. Uh, so, uh, for the, is anybody here a math major in, in undergraduate school? Would you have a math major? No math majors? Well, if we were math majors, which I, by the way, I'm not, I can barely add, uh, we would know that all systems have sort of a fundamental axiom. That is, that principle that sits at the bottom of some form of mathematics, like the shortest distance between the two objects is a straight line. You don't prove that, that's just there. Uh, it's an axiom. Well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom is like an axiom. It's like the foundation. If we don't get that, 
we can't get anything else. Does that make sense to you all? If, if that's not right at the center of our thought and our hearts, then the search for wisdom will ultimately elude us. Now, I have to tell you, when I was young, I thought, okay, I've read that proverb, now I'll be wise. Uh, that doesn't work that way. The fear of the Lord is the what of wisdom? It's the beginning, right? It's not the end, it's the beginning. Uh, so there's a lot to be done uh, after the beginning. But I want to go back here and just talk a little bit about why we so much need wisdom. And for those of you who read the book, you, you read, read this right at the beginning. Um, I think I've now been a Christian leader for 45 years. I was trying to remember and I think I've been a pastor for about 28, is that right? 24, something like that. Anyway, um, I will tell you that in dealing with people that have really messed up lives, in dealing with people that have very messed up lives, you can sort of get it down to two problems. The first is the worst where someone just simply either wasn't loved as a child or didn't know that they were being loved as a child. I've had to tell parents, it's not that you didn't love your child. They didn't get it that you loved them, and that's just as bad as not being loved. Uh, but where a child has a love deficit, a person has a love deficit, they end up with a low self-image. They end up not feeling good about themselves. They often displace their anger against other people. And as they do that, they just make bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And of all the things we can give our children, actually the simplest, uh, is um, love. Is love. Uh, we have four children, and I tell people... For the first three children, I tried to make them perfect. I gave my effort to that. I disciplined them. I tried to be sure that they knew what was right and what was wrong. And whenever they did something wrong, I was very clear and careful to correct them all the time. And then we had this fourth child. I was worn out. I couldn't do anything. And she turned out just as well. Uh, and I think it's because as long as they know you love them, a, a lot of mistakes in this world get covered up. Right? So that's the first thing, and I, I don't want to skip over that because I think sometimes in our culture we do. Uh, but the second most prevalent reason why people come to a pastor's office and they are in big trouble is bad decision making. Bad decision making. Uh, I got myself involved in a business transaction that I now realize was neither honest nor profitable. And now I'm in big trouble because I used to be a lawyer. In my career, a lot of times businessmen would come and visit me because they would say, at least, Chris, you know what a letter of credit is. Uh, and I've watched people make decisions that were foolish and harm themselves. Or they come to your office. This happened to me, I can't tell you how many times. You've got a young couple that's in financial trouble. Uh, and uh, you sit them down and you begin to go through where they are and you find out that they have a house uh, that takes up 50% of their gross net income. He drives a BMW and she drives uh, a sports car and you're like, sweetheart, I am 60 years old. I've saved all my life and I can't live like you live. So you can't live like you live. <laughs> the numbers don't add up. Uh, and I really, bad financial decision-making, here's, here's one that we'll get to. Uh, when I was very young in Houston, uh, they did a study of divorce. And what, they, what do you think the number one cause of divorce is? 
money. And how do you suppose it works? Do you suppose it works that the more you have, the less likely you are to get a divorce based on money? Or do you think it works that the more money you have, the higher the wealth of the zip code in Houston, Texas in the 1980s, the more likely you were to get a divorce? Which tells you that it's not how much money you have, it's what you do with it, right? You can be just as poor with $100 million as you can be with $5, if you want to be. Or as I used to have to tell Kathy, occasionally she would talk to me about somebody who had lots of money, uh, or appeared to be because they drove all these cars and had a big house, and I would always say, you know, you really don't know what's in the middle between assets and liabilities. <laughs> Might be zero. <laughs> It could be that you have more money than they do. You just don't know it yet. So foolish decision-making is a huge cost of human suffering. So that if we can give our children or our grandchildren anything that will help them in life, we will give them sort of unmerited love the way God loves us. And on top of that, we'll try to share with them wisdom, how to live. So let's get to the second. And I'm going to need a little help on this one uh, because I need somebody to turn to Proverbs 1, if you will. Somebody? Does anybody have a Bible? Turn to Proverbs 1. And if you will, uh, read us Proverbs 1, not the inscription, which we would have, we we're going to talk about in just a minute, but uh, read Proverbs 1 beginning with verse 2 all the way down to 6. Okay? For attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young, let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. So I thought I would line out some of these words that you just read. Thank you. Uh, so that we can, so the first word that appears is understanding. So just what does it mean to understand? I got a question about understanding. Yeah. This is day eight, but we're covering all the readings from last week. Oh, okay. So the first seven are this week. Okay? okay? Right. The first seven of this week. Every week, all this class is is a review of what you did last week on your own, okay. which is why I ask you, do you have any questions about what you read? Because you do. Because understanding is to know how things work, right? I understand how the stock market works. That, by the way, is a lie. Uh, but... <laughs> Uh, I understand how to mow my grass. I understand how to change my oil. I understand how it works, right? So that's understanding. Now, insight is a little different. What's insight? Read the book? Knowledge is different, actually. A deeper understanding. Or, to take the word at its thing, to see into. To see into. 
Now, how many of you all in life have found out that you really need to be able to see into the minds of other people under certain circumstances? Has that thought ever occurred to any of you? That what's on the surface is often not what needs to be understood, right? So that the wise person has developed the capacity to see into situations, people, circumstances, and to go beyond the surface to figure out what's really going on. I know we have at least one lawyer in the room, and lawyers, we spend our, because no client, within reason, ever comes to you and says, I'm guilty, I messed up, I did everything wrong. They say, I'm innocent, I've been abused, and I should win this case. It's up to the lawyer to figure out how much of that's true. It's up to the lawyer to figure out how much of what the client is saying to you is actually true. And the same thing occurs to the other side. So inside is to see into. In other words, we need to help our children and grandchildren. We ourselves need to look below the surface to see more of what's really going on. The third one is experience. What's experience? Unfortunately. <laughs> I've been to this rodeo before, right? <laughs> I've seen this happen before. Uh, Obviously, I think one of the dangers of our culture is we glorify the young and we presume that a young person will be just as good as an older person at certain things. And what have young people generally not done that really prevents them from being wise? They haven't failed yet, have they? They haven't gone through the hard parts of life so that they're seeing this problem for the second or third time and they know how not to do it because probably they did it wrong the first time. So experience is just what we get by going through life. Now, our children and grandchildren have a choice to make, which I point out. Either we can help them learn from our experience or what? They have to do it all over again and make the same stupid mistakes we made, right? So the object of helping a child learn from experience is not to preach at them, but to help them not have to redo the entire history of the human race in experience before they get a way of managing their life. So for example, we're going to get to a little proverb in a few weeks, that goes, the servant is the borrower, the borrower is the servant of the lender. Okay. Now, it is the experience of everyone that has ever borrowed money that you have to pay it back, and that as long as you're paying it back, you are what to the lender? You're their servant. That's right. So teaching children about the dangers of borrowing too much money. I disagree with that. I'm a finance professor. And it's a mutually beneficial decision that both sides will party with, as are all transactions where both sides know what they're doing and make a choice. So you're not the slave. You're a partner in your goal. Let's call it that. I think that that's a fair comment. But think of it this way. But if you borrow too much, or if you borrow from the wrong person, or if you borrow it in the wrong way, you've harmed yourself, and that's the warning. If you Not, eat wrong, you harm yourself, yeah. you don't eat, you don't live. You don't live. And, by the way, yeah. yeah, you might not have been here last week. It isn't to say never borrow, it's to borrow wisely. It's not to never borrow. That's not the point. Uh, but sometimes Christians use this as a thing, we should never borrow any money. But that's not what it's meaning. It's just saying, hey, know what you're getting into. Okay. Another stupid question. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to follow what you're doing. And are you like just hitting on high points over these last seven days? Yes. 
That's okay. exactly what I'm doing, because okay. you're not talking. But when you start talking, I'll stop. <laughs> Discernment is to be able to discern the true facts, the true principles that are applied to a situation. Okay? Because obviously, not every principle applies to every situation. I think I'll skip ahead, because Paul's given me an idea. Um, but I want to sort of point something out that we're going to find out as we read Proverbs. And I, this appears a little, this week is we're covering six chapters of the book or so. Um, the Jews don't really have an idea that what works and what is moral or what is wise can be different things. We live in a world in which we can conceive that what works might not be moral or what is wise or shrewd might not be, be moral. But they live in a world that is whole. So that God, in creating the world, uh, created a, a universe that works in a certain way and the wise man lives in accordance with the flow of the universe. So you gave us a, a point. What happens to someone, my father did this, what happens to you if you make the choice to eat cheeseburgers uh, and french fries three meals a day every day for your entire life? What happens to you if you do that? You look like this. Yeah, you look like Paul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or you look like my father did. Uh, and the fact is uh, that the universe sort of built us a certain way and nutrition is a part of the way the world works. So the wise person eats, drinks, sleeps, takes care of their body sort of in accordance with the way the universe built us, okay? Uh, that's one. But secondly, and this is the harder one sometimes for conservative Christians to get, we all live in a culture, right, that is a certain way. We live in neighborhoods. We have business associates. They have certain rules. They're not necessarily the same rules that a Roman of the first century would have had or a Jew of the fifth century B.C. would have had. And so wisdom is able to live in, an, in order with creation and the principles God is sort of embedded in the universe. That's one of the things I think we need to recover. And... You've got to be able to apply that in the culture and circumstances in which you find yourself. Because uh, will you live in a society whose rules you can't change, right? So that's what Jesus means when he says, be wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove. Uh, we live in a world that doesn't always operate according to the principles that we wish it would operate in accordance with. And we have to somehow find a way to make our way through that. The wise person is able to do that. The wise person is able to live successfully, whatever their circumstances. And prudence, prudence is what? Self-control. Knowing the consequences before it happens. Anticipating the consequences, not rushing in where angels fear to tread, <laughs> as it goes. Uh, prudence is knowing how far to go knowing what to avoid, uh, knowing how to m get where you want to go without undue conflict, okay? Yeah, and, and so that's why I said this word chokmah, which is the word in the Hebrew for wisdom, is a word that at its root is the same word they would use 
uh, for trading, a trader in a Middle Eastern bazaar. So how many of you have ever been to Marrakesh or somewhere like that and had, or Mexico and had to figure out what the price of something was? <laughs> That's the root word, <laughs> is I'm here in this bazaar where everybody's trying to cheat me and I've got to figure my way through this and get a good price uh, for my product, okay? Uh, so that's kind of the root at it. Now, so I've gotten that far. I'm going to go this one. So this word, fear, is in the Hebrew, yare. Uh, there's no real easy way to get that in English letters, but if you were going to, it would be Y-R-H. Um, so a little, bit, a little bit about the way Hebrew works. Uh, I'll, we have several people have been to seminary, so I can tell you, it's easier to cheat in Hebrew than in Greek, a matter of which I am an expert, uh, because Hebrew is a more primitive language, and often the professor cannot tell you you're wrong in the way you translated the word, because it's so primitive a word can mean more things. So you can sort of be half right and still get credit on the test. Greek is a nightmare because it's very precise, and if you're wrong, you're just wrong, right? You're just wrong. And as hard as you try to convince the professor you were really right, they're just going to laugh at you. Well, this word, yare, has, oh, and by the way, there are no vowels in Hebrew. So all vowels were supplied. In modern Hebrew texts, they supply vowel points. But that hides the fact that in the Hebrew language itself, at the time these words were written, there were no vowel points. Okay? So, um, yare means fear. Okay? So, in battle, yare would be the feeling you would have, and that would be used for that. But it's also used for reverence. It's also used for reverence. And those of you who read my little translation, I translated it deep respect. Um, I, I use this little analogy. We, we used to live in Houston, and we had friends that um, got to go to space launches from the Space Center. Uh, and uh, they would all come back with sort of a similar story. You sit five miles away from a space shuttle when it goes off in the air. But as much power is going to be displaced by that rocket in about a minute as an atomic bomb. So I said, when you're five miles away, the shattering of the thing is so great that you are just shaking inside of yourself because of the vibrations from this huge power. Or I like to say a little story from my past. One day we were laying track near Black Rock, Arkansas, and somebody made a mistake up the line, and we weren't far from a curve, and we weren't paying very attention, and the guy that was our foreman had gone off to get a glass of water, and we look up, and there is a huge freight train coming right down on us. And uh, you never saw 20 men move as fast out of the way in your life as we did that day. Because what happens if you stay in the track when a freight train comes by? It's not like you spend a lot of times wondering, should I try to stop it or should I run? You, you know, the best move here is run. So... The fear of the Lord is that recognition we have that in front of God, he's the freight train and we're the guy on the track. He's the space shuttle and we're the guy watching. <laughs> uh, he has this power within him uh, that we must respect. We must respect that power because it's greater than us. Okay? And that's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
is because it is when we have that respect, that deep respect for God, that we see what He is, what He has done in creation, what He continues to do in human life. Now, what quality do we immediately develop? Fear. Let's put it Reverence, respect, humility, awe. Humility, reverential awe, respect, reverence. We develop a certain, let us call it, detachment from our human pride. Is that a good way to put it? We develop a detachment from our human pride. And now we are able to allow God to show us the facts. Um, you know, some of you were probably in business and other professions. When you are young in a profession, you often think you know the answer, right? And you make a lot of mistakes doing that. Uh, it's, I used to tell people, when a, per, a lawyer becomes safe to put off with a client alone is when they are able to admit, I don't know the answer. <laughs> when they're able to have some humility about their own position, because then what can happen? They can learn. They can see facts that don't agree with their theory. Uh, they can see alternatives that before were hidden from their very eyes. Uh, so it's in humility that we look at the universe, we look at a problem, uh, we look at a, 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 an issue we're trying to solve, and we allow that problem to speak to us. Does that make sense? And that's why the fear of the Lord is so important. Is that it's that moment we allow God to speak to us, we allow human situations to speak to us, we don't presume that we know the answer. We presume that the answer will come to us if we in humility seek the answer. Does that make sense? So, uh, that's this word, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That a reverence, a respect, uh, a, a, a humility before God, uh, 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 the ability to allow a situation in God to work for us. Now, do you think you have, I'm going to go to some questions now, please answer or I'll have to talk more. Do you think you have a deep respect for God? Do you think you do? Yeah. <laughs> His. Striving all our lives for that. You know, this is where we. The, the first, yeah. <laughs> and what happened to Solomon when he stopped striving? The, the, the way the Bible puts it, the wisest man that ever lived ends up as a fool, and his house is destroyed. Uh, yeah, seven hundred. I do want to have lunch today, but I always say I can't even handle one. 700 is the number I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So did anybody answer the question? You don't have to answer this. Five people you respect and why you respect them. Did you answer that? Does anybody have, a, would anybody share with the group their answer? Try to speak loudly. 
Yes. Oh, just give me one. They're common um, traits in, in my mind as, is that I found that they were very peaceable. Um, they were not totally, ridiculously, continually in conflict. Even though they might have had internal conflict, they, <coughs> they are some of the most peaceable people that I know uh, in how they deal with problems and, and issues and, and that type of thing. They're, they, they don't have an arguing bone in their body, it appears. It appears. Yes. I'll counter that with some lawyers uh, and a couple of pastors, but <laughs> they they were all extremely bright. They were all Christians, very strong Christian men. They're also all six feet tall or more, usually six two. But they had sort of the deference or some word earlier, uh, forbearance to wait. They also had the courage. It wasn't just the peacemaker side. They had the discernment, which you talked about up here, to know when and how to fight and what the timing should be. What the timing should be. That's a really... So he, he said, I'm supposed to repeat this so it gets to the tape, that wise people have a certain forbearance in decision-making. They don't jump to decisions. On the other hand, when the time has come to make the decision, they know how to do that. Uh, but they don't jump but they're willing to forbear a little bit. Does that make sense? That's a very good comment. Anybody else have something they wanted to share? Yes? Mine were men and women, but when you're saying about what is the, the common thread, I think it is that they were direct and deep in their faith, but they were open to conversation to learn and to not say, well, this is the way it is, but like to talk about it and for there to be a common, with the denominator being the word of God. So like they wouldn't differ and be open to. So I'm gonna put a word in your mouth. The willingness to dialogue. The willingness to converse. This is a very, also an extremely good point. Um, so often, especially about matters of faith, we want to convince someone, and so the conversation becomes something like this. But dialogue is the willingness to learn from the other. Mm -hmm. It's the willingness to be open to the other person and to allow the conversation to roll. Uh, that doesn't mean we give up what we think is right, by the way. It just means that we are open and allow the other person to share their view. With respect. With respect. Yes. Um, so that... That is really a good, a good place for us to start to end today because we do have to do prayer. But the answer is that, that this thing about dialogue, I can't tell you how important it is. I, I've just finished reading a book, which some of you guys might be able to think about. But in the postmodern world, I think we're going to find that the ability to dialogue, that word dialogos means to talk between, to reason between, <laughs> Uh, that ability to reason between with other people 
is such an important quality. Um, I'm a pretty big critic of all the governments we've had for some time. Uh, <laughs> people get into um, power and they do this and they don't listen to the opposition and people get into power and they do that, they don't listen to the opposition, as opposed to talking to the opposition and saying what's really best here? What's really the best solution here? Uh, often we run this in churches, you know, I've, I've been a pastor for a long time and I'd like to say I've made some perfect decisions, but that's not true. What I've learned is there's what works today. <laughs> there's what we can do today to make things better. There is no perfect, there is no getting to perfection, so let, let's have humbler motives. This dialogue has a big application, has a big application how we treat our children, how we treat you know, our families, how we run our businesses. Um, uh, I, I don't know if I can't want to but you know, to recognize, as I say, you'll hear me tell a story. One thing I've learned in business is the dumbest guy in the room can always be right. Always. About, can always be right in a circumstance. So the wise person listens to everybody in the room because that person you least respect in the room could be right in this instance. And I have a really funny story about a day that happened to me. Uh, so... List, learning to listen dialogue is a big, big, big part of getting wise and making good decisions, I might add, anywhere. So that's a good place. So with any, anybody have any more questions? We did make it to day two, by the way. Um, I think I'll go to day eight. I think I want to go one more place here this week just before we quit um, because I think I want to... Would somebody go to page 14 and read us John 1, 1 through 4? Anybody? Would? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So I want to go back and give you that word to this word creation here. If we'd had time, we would have read Proverbs 8, where wisdom is seen as operating by God in the foundation of the world. The insight of John is that the logos, which is the Greek word for rationality, logic, system, organization, that the logos of God was present in Jesus Christ which is why Paul can say Christ has become for us the wisdom of God, okay? So that for Christians, in addition to the principles that we will go over in this lesson, in these lessons, there is a person. There is a person. And the person is a person who combined in a single person both the wisdom and the love of God. And that, I, we're going to get to this, get some deep things, but that's another part of ministering to our culture. Because remember, that love and wisdom, what did it do decisively when the time came for it to act? Saved us by dying on a cross. Giving up all power, giving up all authority, uh, giving up 
all the ability to direct us, the wisdom of God was revealed in self-giving love. Okay? And that personhood, understanding the way that personhood of Christ embodies the wisdom of God, allows us to personally, as opposed to logically, have a vision of how we might embody this wisdom we're going to be talking about throughout these lessons in our own lives. Uh, I hate to leave you on a confused note, uh, but I will. Uh, it also, by the way, is the great answer to the problem of postmodernism, where all, all words become bids for power. Because you see, Christ, when God became one of us, he did not make a bid for power. He died on a cross. So Christianity is uh, exempt from the criticism of the postmodernists in Nietzsche uh, because that is not how it operates. Now, do Christians not follow that? Do we not sometimes not follow Christ? Yes. yes. So the criticism is applicable to us when we don't follow Christ. So uh, that's another part of the story. So prayer requests for the week. Prayer requests. Prayer requests. Prayer requests. Can I have a class question? Yes. Okay, you, the, today is day eight, so that when you go home today, you should read, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding on page 24 and start uh, that series of lessons. The, the fundamental lesson is choose the right path. Once again, uh, you will see as we go through this next week's lessons, uh, another fundamental insight is we all choose to follow one of two paths in life. Either we choose the path of wisdom or the path of foolishness, the path of, of righteousness or the path of wickedness, we get a choice of our paths in life. And, of course, the Bible urges us to choose wisely. Okay? Yes? I was reading the Proverbs corresponding to the date. Are we supposed to be reading, be reading one through that way? The way we did it this, to do this, because we didn't know what date to start on, obviously, um, is... We started last week with one, today we're eight. Next week we'll do eight to 15, I think if my math is right. Uh, and we will talk about those Proverbs next week. So you, when you come to class, you're just beginning the next week, okay? But we're talking about the last week. That's, thank you for that. Does everybody kind of got that? I should have made that more clear. Prayer requests? Prayer requests? Uh, we, have our, our, we have grandchildren and children in Austin, all of whom have COVID. Uh, and uh, I want you to pray for Kathy and for the children. There's nothing more frustrating uh, than um, having a child you need to help, but you can't go because you might get COVID. So <laughs> that's a frustrating moment for a grandmother. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time we've had together as a class. We pray that you would now be with us as we go our separate ways. Some of us have been to church to hear a great sermon. Some of us are going to church to hear a great sermon and worship you. And we pray that you would be with us in that worship. Uh, we do pray, Lord, that you would be with all the families that are present in this room and with their children and with their grandchildren. Uh, we ask that you would bless and watch over them. And Lord, we're at the end, we hope, of this COVID crisis. And we do pray that you would protect all the families here from a resurgence of that disease. Uh, now bless us as we go our separate ways. In Jesus' name, amen.